Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the youth director here at SFBC. This week, I get to share the next message in our Law for Life Sermon Series. Enjoy! Hi there, my name is Richard Frankowitz. I'm the youth director here at Sardis Fellowship. And today, we're continuing on in our summer sermon series called Law for Life, where we're going through the Ten Commandments. So two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Rod started us off in this series by going through the first two commandments, have no other gods before me and make no idols. Today we're starting with the third commandment of the ten, which is do not use the Lord's name in vain. So we'll be speaking on that this morning. At first I thought that Rod might have given me the most Sunday school of all of them, and I realized very quickly that that was very, very wrong. Uh, (laughs) So we're going to get into this together, shall we? So commandment number three, do not use the Lord's name in vain. Now, the Sunday school answer seems pretty clear, and we all know that one, right? Don't use God's name flippantly. Don't use God's name to mean this or that or something else other than God's name. Don't use it in bad or negative ways. We use it as if to say things like, I'm appalled, or that is shocking, or are you kidding me? We invoke the name of God, the name of our God and King, in ways that we end up replacing its meaning altogether. And that kind of usage is fully devaluing the name of God himself. So that actually, there is a point to that Sunday school answer. This command does in fact instruct us to refrain from that kind of usage. But this isn't a three minute message. This command is meant so much more to the Israelites who received it, and we wanna look into that. And we tend to look the Ten Commandments as a whole, as a sort of list of don'ts. But in fact, they're a guide to the kind of walk that God wants his people to live in, as people who are separate, separated as part of God's representatives. They are God's representatives. We are God's representatives. And so this commandment is meant to separate people so that God's representatives actually mean something. It means something different than everybody else. So we're going to look at that. It's a whole lot more holistic of a thing, these commandments, than you might initially imagine, including this one. This truly isn't a law about semantics and syntax, like what words mean or how they're said. No, 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 this instruction is about something greater. And before we get into what God is trying to instruct his people to do or how he's trying to instruct his people, we we should discuss his name itself because that is a component of this law, if not a core component of this law. So God's names. So firstly, there's his personal name, Yahweh, where he he gives to his people, to uh, to Moses and the burning bush in in Exodus chapter 3, where Moses asks him, you know, who should I say sent me? These people are going to ask, and what should I tell them? And God says, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent me to you. And when he says this, he says this name, Yahweh, because they were not speaking English. He didn't say, I am. He said, Yahweh. That was his name, the name that he's given himself, this personal name. That's not necessarily the totality of what God calls himself, but it was for the sake of what he wants to share with us, his personal name. So that has importance. Secondly, there's Adonai. Uh, And it's a Hebrew word that means Lord or Master, and it's the name that his people typically used for him. There was actually an Israelite tradition about using this name for him. There's also the word Elohim, uh, which is another Hebrew word that means God, um, can be used for like big G, our Israelite, the God of the Israelites, or 
It can also mean little g god, like other like pagan gods, that kind of idea. It's a word for god. So not necessarily a name god, kind of more of a word, but that could also be said about Adonai, so fair enough. Um, we're not going to get too much into that. But I do want to look a little bit at the Israelite tradition, that custom and practice, uh, because they had one, a very specific one, because they recognized God's name Yahweh that he gave for himself was important. So they would write in the Hebrew Bible Yahweh, that these, these four consonants, the Y-H-W-H, um, well, well the, the Hebrew letters, you know what I mean, but that's what it effectively looks like in English. But um, they would write this, God's name, his personal name, and they would surround it in the vowels of the word Adonai. And they would do this for a reason, because Yahweh is a word that's all consonants. It's not actually spelled like Y-A-H-W-E-H. There's not vowels in there, but they put the, the vowels for Adonai around it as a reminder to speak the word Adonai, to not misspeak God's name. Now, they did this on purpose, and this is where you get the capitalized Lord in your Bible, L-O-R-D. We get this in our Bible, mostly in the Old Testament. Whenever you see that, that's what you're seeing, is this Yahweh with Adonai around it. That was their tradition, as a reminder to say Adonai, to not misspeak the name Yahweh. It was a reminder for them, and they did this because they understood that the Lord's name is sacred. Just as God is sacred, they knew that his name itself was sacred. And as God had given this commandment to them, they wanted to respect and honor that. So they didn't say his name out of fear for saying it wrong. They didn't want to misspeak his name because they knew that he's sacred. So this commandment to not use his name in vain carried a lot of weight with his people, and they respected it. They respected that rule, that law that he had given. Now, there's also another name that comes out of this that we should also talk about, and that's the name Jehovah. It's not actually that old. It's about 500 years old. Uh, it originated from some German scholars. They saw this tradition of writing Yahweh with the Adonized vowels around it and thought it to be a single word. Consonants and vowels make sense, right? Thus, the word Jehovah came about. Um, so it's not actually God's personal name, and it's not necessarily the name that his people used for him. We don't have evidence to back that up. Does that mean that Jehovah's a bad name that shouldn't be used, that we should throw it out and get rid of all the Bibles that have Jehovah in it? No. Actually, I, I think it can be helpful too. There's a lot of other um, things in history. We shouldn't just throw away pieces of history without knowing what's behind them. So the name Jehovah is also used in conjunction uh, with other descriptions that are helpful in understanding who God is, the nature of God. So there are Jehovah Jireh, that means God will provide. Jehovah Shalom, God of peace. Jehovah Ra, God is my shepherd. So while not technically God's name, Jehovah is still useful for describing and understanding God. So we shouldn't just throw it out. Um, so don't get, we're getting caught up in a technicality. This is sort of a sidetrack, I will admit that. But if you're getting lost in any of this stuff about his name, take away this. God's people understood that his name is sacred, just as they understood that God is sacred. And his name is a reflection of his sacred self. So back when I was in high school, I had a friend of mine who wanted to one time tell me that Jesus is the same name as Joshua. He was trying to like point out that Jesus is just some ordinary guy like any other Joshua and he's nothing special because his name is nothing special. And I got really mad at him about that. I got frustrated and offended. He did have a point. Um, God's name is sacred. But that said, 
Jesus is sort of the name Joshua. In Greek, it's Iesus. Um, that's where we get the name Jesus from. Uh, in Hebrew, his Hebrew name was Yeshua, um, which is where we get Joshua from. You know, <laughs> Jesus is the anglicized version of the Greek Iesus, and Joshua is the anglicized version of the Hebrew uh, Yeshua. So yeah, they are the same. But that's because the New Testament's written in Greek and the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. So that's why we get those differences and why we refer to Jesus as Jesus and not Joshua. But none of that actually takes away from who Jesus is. I was mad because I felt like he was trying to detract from the, the glory of God, the glory of Jesus. But in reality, that nature of his name in no way takes away from the majesty of Jesus Christ. And we still have to recognize that. Jesus is still sacred, just as God is sacred. That's why we add the title, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. <laughs> it's what Christ means. So we, we specialize Jesus as something unique and important and special. So that's the names of God. And we should look deeper into this commandment. Do not use the Lord's name in vain. So let me ask you this question. What do you think matters most to God, more than anything else? We can find the answer by looking at what Jesus did in Pretty much every circumstance, he did two things, or at least, you know, one of these two things, but generally speaking, both of these two things. First, he met immediate needs, healings, exorcisms, miracles, those kinds of things. And the second thing that he did was he addressed the heart of the people. I, I took away from this out of uh, something that Dr. Ted Roberts wrote, um, but he did these two things in every circumstance. He met immediate needs and addressed the heart of the people. And that speaks to what God cares about. God cares about our heart. Our heart is the heart of the issue with God. It is the biggest issue with God. That's the thing that he cares about. In basically every circumstance, more than everything else, he cares about what, where is your heart at. So in everything, that's what we should be looking at. And with this law, that's what we should be looking at, is our heart. Because our heart is our biggest battlefield. It's where we're fighting off the enemy and aligning ourselves with God. That's where the fight happens, is internally. You know, uh, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. How your heart is positioned with respect to how you see and treat God matters. Or, let me ask you this, when it comes to your heart, how do you actually treat God? It's a question we need to ask ourselves, and I need to ask myself. Because we tend to think sometimes that our actions aren't defined in our heart. They're defined in our brain, in our logical thinking actions. But Jesus points out in Luke 6 that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the things that are in our heart, what is stored in our heart, what matters in our heart will dictate how we live our lives, how our actions play out. What we really care about will play out in how we actually live our lives. So how much do we care about God? Does that play out into how we actually live our lives? What does it look like to take this, God's position, where he stands in our heart, and have that reflect in our action? In order to lay out what that stance looks like in action, we should describe it well first. And I would like to do that in two ways. So the first of those is respect. Respect is to treat someone or something with high regard or high value. Now, men in particular tend to hold respect with really high personal value. Like, respect really matters to men. And this actually came from God himself. And it's a way that we reflect him. 
So think about, for example, a teenager with their father. When a teenager has skepticism and disagreement, and that's happening and coming from the teen, it tends to be received by the father as rebellion. It's taken as disrespect when there's skepticism or disagreement. The actions of teens are, are frequently received that way. But how does the father or, or any parent feel in that, in that scenario? They feel like their authority itself is being questioned, or like they are being belittled as a parent or like their personal value from that child is being lowered. It's a blow. We know the saying, God is a jealous God. You've heard that before. Because there's some truth to that. God cares about where he actually stands in your heart. He cares about how you value him. So we look at the first and second commandment that we talked about two weeks ago. Have no other gods before me and make no idols. Don't go worshiping other things. It's important about how we, whether or not we put God first in our lives, where God actually stands in our hearts. So does God being jealous mean that he's insecure? Not in the least. See, God went the extra mile with great personal cost to himself in order to rescue us, to rescue you and me from the consequence of our sin. And he did what no one else could do on our behalf. God fought the ultimate battle for us. So he's earned our respect in literal blood and tears. So yeah, (laughs) he's earned it. He deserves our respect. God actually has the right to be jealous when we give our hearts away and worship to other things, other people. To be jealous when we chase after sin and material things. We owe him our respect. Because he's gone to the nth degree for us. He's gone to hell and back for us. Right? We owe him our respect. What does our respect for God look like? Let's talk about that. I would say that the second description of the stance in our heart that we should address is the fear of the Lord. Now that comes out of uh, wisdom literature. You know, uh, the book of Job to the book of Ecclesiastes. It focuses on fear the Lord. It's a core point in all of those books. And, and the fear of the Lord is about this idea, this recognition that God is on the throne in the very kingdom he has made. He is seated at the throne right now. He's above all of it. And he made everything. He made it all. And he reigns over it all. And as the king of kings, he deserves our glory. So there's a lot of instances in the Bible of people taking the glory for themselves or people disrespecting God. And much of the time when people died in the Bible from supernatural causes, that was the result of people not giving glory to God or being disrespectful openly to God in rebellion. So take, for example, the Tower of Babel. They were trying to go ahead and conquer the world by reaching heaven on their own. They don't need God anymore. And God said, "Uh, that's not how it works, and knocked them over and sent them out everywhere. So they couldn't speak to each other. They had to go leave. He scattered them. In the wilderness, when the Israelites were like, send us back to Egypt. It was so much better there. They were being unappreciative and disrespectful, and some people died in the process. When uh, they were going and conquering Jericho afterwards, there was this guy, Achan, who went back and stole gold, gold from Jericho. There was a consequence for that, something that had been consecrated for God, set apart for God, and he's like, no, I want that thing. That's my thing. It doesn't just work that way. When Herod in the New Testament 
is hearing people praise him and saying, he's like a god, and he's like, yeah, that's awesome. He's dead because of it, because he was taking God's glory, the glory that belongs to God. Now, think about for a second when we see ants. We see ants and we, we know that we are so much bigger than them that it would be so easy to just squish them. And sometimes we do, <laughs> especially as kids. We kind of take some fun in that, in squishing ants. Now, God doesn't see us the exact same way, but I want to share a little story about that. So when I was in middle school, um, I, was, uh, I, had, I had this guy in my shop class uh, who was a friend of mine, and he was talking about how he had this other guy who had bullied him when he was in elementary school. And we had just gotten into middle school, and he was telling me about this, and I'm like, man, I would love to beat up that bully. I would love to see that bully get beaten up for hurting you, like, or for making fun of you, or any of that kind of stuff. Like, that's awful. That shouldn't have happened. He doesn't deserve, he, he, he deserves worse for that. And naturally, this guy wasn't in my shop class, so I felt safe to go ahead and say that, but he had friends in that shop class. So within a week, he was coming around to let me know that he'd be happy to get into a fight. And he proceeded to let me know that he was more than capable of squishing me like an ant. And I was very aware of this because I was a nerdy, scrawny little teenager. Now I'm still nerdy and a bit louder and a bit less scrawny, but uh, point is, I felt really safe to go ahead and disrespect this guy because he wasn't in the room. I was comfortable with disrespect because he wasn't there. And sometimes we treat God that way, like he's just not there and we can just go ahead and it doesn't matter how we use his name because he's not actually like watching over our shoulder, right? But he's not watching over our shoulder. The thing is, he's present with us as a gift to us. <laughs> he has this nature called omnipresence, which means he's everywhere all at once. We understand that, that means he's everywhere. And God, so God is always present in our lives. When Jesus left, he said, I'm giving you a gift of someone to come with you so that you never have to be alone. The Holy Spirit lives within us. So he's with us all the time. So it doesn't actually make sense to treat God like he's not in the room. That doesn't actually work. So how does God see us? How does God value us? We, when we see ants, we just think to squish them. But God doesn't see us as small to insignificant ants, even though he's so much greater than we are and we are so squishable. God sees us as his unique creations, as a special reflection of himself. We were made in his image. He did that on purpose. He sees us as his beloved ones, as his very adopted children. He sees us as being worth coming down to earth in human flesh, taking on punishment and torture and pain and even death, the death that we deserve for sin. He sees us as worth all of that. So could he squish us? Yes, very, very easily. Does he? No, he's chosen a very different path. Instead of destroying us for our rebellion sin, which is open rebellion to God, instead of destroying us for our rebellion he chose instead to rescue us from that sin, from that destruction, at great personal cost. That was the choice that he made. That's how much he loves us and adores us, sees us as precious. Therefore, fear of the Lord is highly appropriate. <laughs> 
To live with an understanding of who he is is highly appropriate. God is so, so deserving of our love and our affection, of our value and our respect. So is fear of the Lord like being scared, like being scared of the dark or being scared of spiders, being scared of snakes? No, because this fear of the Lord is an awe. It's a stance of thankfulness, of being in recognition of the fact that God is God on the throne in control of the world. He can do what he wants, and yet he loves us and chooses to live that way, chooses to make choices on our behalf and benefit Christ's death on the cross. So we should live in recognition of that. That's what fear of the Lord is. So how do we live this out? Well, I would look at our stance in prayer, for example, of how this stance of our heart in recognition and respect and fear of the Lord works. So when we pray, how do we treat God? Do we treat him like he's the king of kings sitting on his throne, the Lord of all? I think about Esther before King Xerxes. She was very cautious when she approached him because if the king didn't acknowledge her, she would be killed. That was their reality that they lived in. So when she came before the king, she was scared, but she was in recognition of his authority. In prayer, we are coming before the king on his throne, the king of all kings on his throne. Do we act like that? Or do we treat God like an errand boy, like a servant? Are our prayers only concerned with asking him to do what we want? That's not a bad thing thing to ask him to help us with things. He tells us to. However, is this the only thing that our prayers are concerned with? Do we actually spend time in our prayers trying to seek the Lord's will or giving thanks to God or giving recognition for what he is doing or listening to him? Those kind of things should take importance in how we pray. Because if we understand that God is the king on the throne, it should change how we pray. It should be more than just asking for things. There should be this stance in our heart. And don't get me wrong, I am implicated here in how I pray. You guys hear me pray all the time in recorded services. So if anything, I'm very much on like (laughs) pointing all the fingers back at myself here. But are we coming before him with respect and reverence? What I want to be asking when we're talking about prayer, are we giving him the glory and the honor that belongs to him, that he has earned beyond earning? So how about when we invoke the name of Christ? We do that a lot in prayer. Consider Acts 3. Peter and James go healing in Jesus' name. They say, silver and gold, I have none, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. By their admission, which they say immediately following, that they are giving God the glory. They are claiming none of the power for themselves in the situation, but it works. By giving God the glory and invoking the name of Christ, a man is healed. God's name has power, and we should recognize the power of God's name. But they are taking none of that power, claiming none of it for themselves. They are giving it all to God. All of the glory is his. But look at Acts 19. People are then attempting to claim power and glory for themselves by trying to misuse Jesus' name. They try to cast out demons and say, well, in the the name of Jesus Christ that, that Paul preaches, demon go away, and it doesn't work. 
um, the demon beats them up because they're trying to go ahead and just assert power or claim glory for themselves in this. Their heart probably wasn't in the right place in doing so. So if you want to know how do I pray in power for God to save, God to move, how does that work? Well, check your heart first. A pretty quick place to look and probably the best place to look. Where is our heart at when we do so? I want to share a short story about that. So it was one time uh, I was in high school and I was wanting to evangelize to a friend. I'd been having some theological discussions with him and I was hoping that things would be moving in a direction where he would want to go ahead and accept Christ as personal savior. And so I remember one night after one of these discussions where I was hoping it would be leading that direction, that before I went to bed, I started praying and I, I was pacing around my room going, God, like, I want this to happen. I want him to come to faith in you. Can you please just let this happen. Can you prepare him so that tomorrow we can have this conversation and I can talk to him and, and give him things to say and it will result in him, you know, coming to know you. But the thing was, I know that my heart was in the wrong place there. That didn't happen the next day because I was asking with the wrong things in mind. I wanted to be the one in that moment to be able to reap the harvest, to actually like bring someone to faith in Christ. And because it was my desire to, to do that myself, I wasn't seeking God's will. I was wanting something actually for myself. I wasn't making it about God. I wasn't actually making it about my friend. In my heart, I was making it about me. And that's a mistake that is so easy for us to make sometimes. But it is for God to move in the hearts of people, to draw them to him. The glory is his. He's the one on the throne. He is the king of kings above all, not us. <laughs> so sometimes we need to pay attention to, to where our heart is, especially when we pray. In other areas of life too, for sure. Let's talk about that. So as a bit of an analogy, one we've used before, I'll recognize, we're going to talk a bit about the military. And specifically the people who, who died giving their lives for our freedom as Canadians. Now, regardless of your political views, and I understand that some people have been hurt by wars and by their, their loved ones going away, but regardless of, of any of those things, I know that there's, I'm positive, there's no rational thinking person who would slander and disrespect those who had died to sacrifice their own lives for our freedom, for your freedom, for my freedom. None of us would go ahead and say, oh, like, would slander or disrespect those people in any serious way, in any real intention. Why would we do that? It would be so awful. <laughs> we have this understanding that they have given of themselves for others, for the sake of our land, for our people, for the sake of the true north, strong and free. They gave themselves for that, and we respect them for it. We have a day set aside for it. People don't go rioting on Remembrance Day. People don't have huge protests on Remembrance Day. We have protests on basically every other holiday. But that one's one we can all agree. It's appropriate to just be in recognition of those people and the sacrifice that they made. Now, God actually took on human flesh, suffered pain and torture on our behalf, and died so that we could be free from the consequence of sin. And he did it out of love for us, for you and me. So 
Why is it that we, we will refuse to slander or disrespect military people who have given their lives for us, but yet when it comes to God, who has done something on such a greater and grander scale with such more serious consequences, because this affects our eternity, why would we then think it's acceptable to treat God with disrespect and slander, to take his glory for ourselves, to invoke his name flippantly, or to treat him like our servant when we pray? It is our responsibility as his people to be his representatives in the world. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about. It is part of our calling to hold him with high regard, which is respect, as one who is sacred and with awe of his majesty and greatness, which is the fear of the Lord. This should be visible by how we live, like in how we pray and how we talk about him and how we treat other people in all of those things, it should be visible. Our respect, our fear of the Lord, the stance of our heart should be visible in how we act. So I want to give us one last application for this as we close. So gossip is something that we barely even treat as sin. Like, we really don't in a lot of ways. And it is sin. To talk about somebody else when they're not in the room in any amount of disrespectful way or in any way that's like trying to share information, ultimately private information sometimes, a lot of the times, yeah, about those people, as though it's somehow entertaining or enjoyable. You know, we describe secrets as a juicy thing, as if they're somehow like a good thing to go ahead and like it's entertaining or it's a good thing to go ahead and share those. And we know that it's not. That's why they're secrets. It's not what it's meant for, which means gossip is just a, a flippant, like disrespect of those things, usually private information. So one thing I would say to that is that the practice of refraining from gossip is actually an exercise of respect for other people. And by getting better at, at respecting others, we can learn how to get better at respecting God. By learning how to get better at respecting others, we can then learn how to get better at respecting God. And we want to get better at respecting God. We're his representatives. And this whole thing, it's a practice, right? We're on a journey. We need to be people of grace. It's really important. That's how we honor God. That's how we follow this commandment. That's how to not use the Lord's name in vain. So, would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace for us that you have given to, to learn and hear about your commandments, but to follow them and to seek you, that we have an opportunity to be able to be your representatives here on earth. We ask that you would bless us as we do so to honor you. We give you all the glory and honor as we do so. Help us to have a stance in our heart that reflects that, that reflects your majesty and holds you in high position and high regard with a fear of the Lord with due respect for who you are and what you have done for us. Help us to live that out. Help us to honor you. Give us grace to do so as we pray, that you might be lifted up higher and glorified as we do so. So have your way in us. Help us to know how to walk forward in doing so and honoring you and honoring those around us so that you might be lifted higher. We ask these things in your holy name. and We give you the praise, glory, and honor. Amen. Amen.
Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.